0: I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah 42. It's our second of Advent, and let me remind you what that means. What is Advent? Well, it's a time that we set aside as we approach Christmas to remember the coming of Christ. Christ means coming. Advent means arriving. And so it's a time that we remember that Jesus arrived. He, he came. That's why we celebrate Christmas. We're remembering that he came. And we're also, during this time, this time of Advent, we are remembering this promise. That he has promised to come again. Which means that you and I, have a lot in common with our brothers and sisters who lived before the first coming because just as they were a people waiting and watching, we too are a people in waiting. And it's important that we wait with awareness, that we wait with anticipation, that we wait with hope. Here's the thing that I don't have to tell you because you know. LIFE IS FULL OF DIFFICULTY, DISAPPOINTMENT, DEBT, DISCOURAGEMENT, AND YET, ADVENT A TIME FOR US TO REMEMBER, JESUS HAS COME, HE IS COMING, SALVATION HAS COME, IT IS COMING, AND MY HOPE IS, THOSE REALLY THEOLOGICAL SOUNDING THINGS, AREN'T THEY? Hopefully what we can do during Advent is connect really big, really true realities to what's going on in your life in December of twenty-one. That's the to be a people who recognize hope and who can have lives that live consistent with what we know is coming and what we know who with consistent with who we know has come. What I love about Advent, one of the reasons I love preaching on Advent during the month of December is because there's no other sermon series I have ever preached that gets as much promotion and reinforcement outside of the building. Not to say that anyone outside the building talking about my sermons, but everywhere we go. Is in Texas, there's not many things we have to help us mark the seasons. We have to create it ourselves. And I'm glad we do. We hang lights outside, we bring trees inside. December looks different, sounds different, smells different. All around us, we have these reminders, even if it's 80 degrees outside. We have built that this is a different time of year. And I'm hoping that we can capture that and use it to help us connect those big theological things to the normal parts of life so that we can be people who live looking forward and hope. Maybe more than any point in my life up to now, I really appreciate the, the festivity this month, we'll go downtown, we'll walk around and look at the lights. If we're driving, we'll probably take a detour through a just to see what's going on by way of decorations. There's going to be special parties, different food, and I'm here for it all. But what I love about this time of year, more than the beauty and the delicious aspects of it, is that all of these things are things that we can harness as reminders, right? So we see lights. I hope you think. I hope you tell your children. We see these lights, and they are a reminder that Jesus is the light of the world that is pierced into darkness, like we read together from Isaiah chapter 8. We can hear songs that mention the birth of Christ even in stores and restaurants. The point is we have all kinds of help things that can point us and push us to our hope. But while these things could be used to our benefit, I think we also have to recognize and acknowledge that they could be used to a different effect. Because we could get all into to all the things, the light and the trees and the food and the parties and all of it, And we could decide that if I make this month perfect, then I will have joy, right? We could set out for the Hallmark movie effect. We're going to set up Christmas in our house tonight. It's not going to look anything like Hallmark. It's going to be a disaster. Not when it's done, but the process, everyone in their sweaters, no. My point is, is that we can jump headlong into all the stuff and never use them as reminders, never use them as cues for hope. And we could go into the season and very subtle, we could start seeing all of this the way most of our neighbors and coworkers see them. And as we start to live and think the way they live and think, we could start to trust the things they trust to hope in the things they hope in. If we're not careful, we can put a lot of weight on things that don't matter and will never satisfy, and we can completely ignore the things that are meant to bring us hope. And believe it or not, I think this sets us up well for where we are in Isaiah chapter 42. This morning. If you are with us last week, then you have a head start Isaiah is a book of prophecy. It's a man named Isaiah. He's announcing what God has told him is coming. In the first half of the book, the first 39 chapters, he is primarily prophesying, announcing coming judgment. See, the people of God hadn't been faithful. God was faithful to them, but they rebelled. They began to live for themselves and for the things of the world. So God sends this time of discipline, this time of judgment, this time of how they're going to be defeated by another nation, led out of their land to know, feel, and experience the judgment of God. That's the first half of Isaiah. Last week, we got to turn the page, and we heard that message at the beginning of Isaiah 40, where God says, after the time of judgment, salvation is coming. So he says, comfort, right? Comfort my people, says my God after their salvation, the is not the end of the story. That's what heard last week. So we were in Isaiah 40 last week. You all did your homework, so you all went home, read the rest of Isaiah 40. Hopefully you read through Isaiah 41. And if you did, you would recognize that even though this announcement of hope has been made, God is aware that it may be hard for his people to believe what's coming. Sound familiar? It's been announced, we know what's coming, and yet we still have temptations. God, speaking to his people, identifies some of their temptations. One of their temptations would be to fear. Because here they are, and they are still surrounded by enemy nations who are bigger, stronger, more powerful than them, and even though God has said, I'm going to save you, they're looking around and they're thinking there's no way. So God tells them in Isaiah 41, verse 8: Is You, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners. Saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. This, And he says it several times in Isaiah 41. He says, fear not. I'm with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold And so much of this chapter is God recognizing that even though the announcement's have been made, his people would still have fear. We can be tempted the same way, can't we? To look at the world around us, it's not going well. And we become fearful. There's another that speaks to in chapter 41. The other temptation is not necessarily to fear the other nations, but to join with them and live as they live, and trust as they trust, and believe what they believe. God knew that his people were being tempted to worship the idols, to trust the idols of foreign nations. And so God them is charging them to see that idols can't do anything, can do all things. And so as we get to the end of chapter 41, and those of you who are with us on Wednesdays will appreciate this fully, I think. As we're moving through the end of chapter 41, we get these two verses, each beginning with the word, behold. And in both of these verses, these two behold verses, God is saying, behold, idols can't satisfy. I- idols can't do anything. We see it, for example, there in, I um, thought I marked it here, the end of the, end of the chapter, He says, Behold, the idols are nothing. Right? We have this, behold. What's he saying? One, I know you'll be tempted to fear, but fear not, I'm with you. Two, you may be tempted to trust the idols, to trust the gods, to trust the ideals of the world, but know that they're nothing, they can never satisfy. After four, we get another announcement. Don't fear them, don't worship their gods. Instead, to the one whom I'm going to send. Instead of fearing the gods of the world and believing they're too strong, instead of trusting the gods of the world and believing they must be right, focus on the promise of God. And this is, again, what Advent is all about. It's us trusting that the promises of God are true, that he's greater than any fear we can create He's greater than any hope that we could be tempted to trust. So we come out of 41 and move into 42, we have this announcement. It's an introduction to the one who's going to come and defend his people. So Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. Whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my spirit upon not get hurt in the street, bruised reed, He will not quench. He will faithful justice will not till He establish justice in the earth. Mostlands wait for his law. Thus uh, heavens and stretch them out, who spread out, who gives breath to the people on it, and the spirit to those who want it. He says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So we have this announcement And remember who it's for. These are a people who are struggling to trust God. These are a people who are unsure where to find hope. The nations around them seem more powerful and they're tempted to trust other gods. Here's where I had that verse written in my notes. The last verse of chapter 41. Behold, they are... All a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. You hear how 41 ends? <laughs> behold, they're nothing. Behold, there's no hope. Behold, there's no comfort. Behold, there's no salvation. And to you, church, I want to say, to whatever you're looking for, this side of heaven, this side of Christ to satisfy you, behold, <laughs> it's not going to work. It doesn't satisfy. It wasn't meant to. So we've had two beholds that told us what not to trust and now we have a behold that says look over here behold verse one my servant behold what what does that even mean it means look pay attention i don't want you to miss this god is saying i want you to see my servant it's an announcement of someone who's coming don't miss hope don't miss salvation So the question is, who's the servant? Behold, my servant. And here we are reading our Bibles, and we have to answer the question. And you already have a really good guess, don't you? Because it's Advent, and we're—it's the Bible, and it's church. And I want to tell you, you're right. This is an announcement about Jesus. I also want to acknowledge, for those of you who want to go and have fun with this, it's not as easy as we may initially think. Because there's lots of other places in in Isaiah, we just read it in Isaiah 41, where he calls Israel the nation, my servant. He refers to David as his servant, Saul as his servant. Over and over in the scriptures, God talks about godly men or his nation as my servant but I won't take you through the whole argument, but simply tell you, you are right. If you've come to this passage and assume this is Jesus, it is. He actually claims it for himself in the New Testament. What we have in verse one isn't the name. We're not told who the servant is necessarily, but we are given a description. What's clear is that the servant is strengthened, chosen, loved, and equipped by God. You see all that in verse one? Behold my servant, who I uphold, who I've chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. So what we see is that God has this servant, and he's a strength in him, he's giving him a spirit, he's set him apart, he's chosen him, and he loves him and i think we can make a pretty good argument just from that verse that this is in fact jesus because there's so much overlap between how god speaks of this servant and how god speaks of jesus on the day of his baptism do you remember that that day jesus comes to john the baptist and says i want you to baptize me but john says not a chance there's some back and forth and eventually jesus is in the water we read this in matthew chapter 3 when Jesus was baptized, immediately he co- went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And if you read from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the exact same phrase in Isaiah 42:1, In whom my soul delights and with whom I'm well pleased. This one whom God loves, on whom his spirit has been set. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the servant. And God says, behold, look at him, he's coming. What's he coming for? What's he gonna do when he comes? The end of verse one, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Nation of Israel. Living in exile, God says you're looking to the nations and you're afraid and you're looking to their gods and trying to trust them. You don't know where to look and I'm telling you, look to my servant, my chosen one, he's coming, he will bring justice. And think about what that must sound like to a people who've been living in exile. Being ruled over by other nations, feeling neglected and forgotten. How is it that the people who are against God are prospering while the people of God are suffering? And yet God announces that there is someone coming who will bring justice. And justice is an okay translation. But it's also a word who for us in the U.S. in December of 2021 have a lot of baggage around that word justice. So it's important for us to dig a little deeper. Maybe you would think about it like this. That the servant is coming to proclaim and uphold what is true and right. Right. The world is marked by things that aren't consistent with the rightness of God. But the servant's coming to make all things right, which means in part, saving those who are his. It means in part bringing judgment against those who oppose him. We could summarize it and say, the servant is coming to restore all things to the way God intends. John Calvin says about this verse that Christ is sent in order to bring the whole world under the authority of God and under obedience to him. So we see the lordship, right? This judge, this bringer of justice who's going to rule over all things, set all things right, and bring people to live underneath that system. That's an announcement of what's coming. And I do want to stop for a minute and encourage you to consider that it's good news for us. It's really the heartbeat of what I want us to consider during Advent. Remember the title, it's on the top of your notes. Take heart, salvation is coming. Jesus is coming and he will make all things new. All who believe will be saved, all who oppose will be judged, and everything that is wrong will be made right. This is an announcement from God about the one who's coming to bring justice. But the question is, what's that going to look like? How's he going to do that? And I think I know how the people of Israel thought that would happen. They were expecting a conquering king. They were expecting someone who would defeat their enemies, someone who would come in power and might, prepared to fight. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. But as we keep reading, we see he comes differently in that, doesn't he? Look at verse two. Describing the servant who's coming to bring justice, says he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That doesn't sound like a warrior. That doesn't sound like a conquering king. It certainly sounds very different than all the other kings that were ruling in the nations around Israel at that time. What's described is someone who comes in humility, in meekness, not yelling commands or shouting people down, not trying to rally an army or draw people to himself or draw attention to himself, rather. He's described as being gentle, careful, we see two images there. He talks about a bruised reed. He talks about a faintly burning wick. Two things that honestly are somewhat insignificant. If you are on a hike, and you're marching down the shore, through the brush, next to the river, there's bamboo growing around, you're not worried about what piece of bamboo you step on, right? If something breaks under your feet, it doesn't matter. You've probably never lost sleep over the candle that's starting to get covered up with wax and may soon burn out. But we're told here is that things that don't seem to matter much are handled with care by the one who's coming. He's gentle. He's not going to break those who seem weak or useless. He's patient. He's not going to snuff out someone just because they're almost burned up. He's gentle, patient, kind, merciful to the hurting. Sounds a lot like the way Jesus describes himself. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, don't miss it. This is the heart of God for his people. Our God is a God who comes near to the hurting. He cares about the weak. He cares about the suffering. He cares about those who are bruised and almost burned out. And what's being announced is that someone's coming who's going to set all things right. He's coming, but he's not coming the way you expect. He tells Israel it's not a king or a warrior. WE READ EARLIER IN ISAIAH, IT'S A BABY BORN TO A VIRGIN WHO WOULD ULTIMATELY DIE AS A SACRIFICE FOR SINS, AND THAT'S THE WAY HE BRINGS JUSTICE. THROUGH HIS DEATH, THROUGH HIS RESURRECTION, THAT'S THE MEANS THROUGH WHICH HE MAKES ALL THINGS RIGHT. WE THINK ABOUT HIS LIFE, HIS COMING, AND HE CAME GENTLE AND LOWLY, AND YET WHEN HE CAME, HE WAS HATED, And ultimately killed. And yet Isaiah said truthfully, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What's he saying? He's coming. He won't look the way you thought he would look, but he will endure even to the end. He will accomplish what he's come to accomplish. He will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. What we see here is a declaration from God that he will finish what he has started. Paul says the same thing of his work in us. He will finish what he has started. He will complete it. We know he's already come. He's gone to the cross. He's risen from the dead in victory. Now his salvation is available to us to proclaim to the world. One day he will return. And this is announced over and over in Isaiah. I had a long list of passages I would love to read through with you. Let me just give you one of them. This is me showing restraint, okay? Isaiah 51 verse four. Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like a smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. See the temporary nature of everything we see. Those who dwell in it will die in like manner, but my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will never be dismayed. God's made promises. God keeps promises. There's hope. And we know when we get to the end of the scriptures, John describes it. Revelation 21, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. The former things have passed away and he who is seated on the throne says, behold, that word keeps coming up, doesn't it? Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy, and they're true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the Thursday I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. What's Advent? It's a time for us to take really big theological things about what's happened and what's happening and try to believe them. And I know you can read Isaiah and you can read Revelation and think, that seems so far away from me right now. But church, this is what we've been given to hold on to. To know that our suffering today will not last forever. We read from Romans 8, with creation we groan, waiting for redemption. It's coming. Until then, we can rest in him. I know some of you are struggling today with heavy things. And this year has been hard and unpredictable. It's December and it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And for you, the idea of selling, celebrating Christmas seems like salt in an open wound. Because your work is hard. There's dysfunction in your family. Your health is failing. You have this constant sense of despair. Christmas doesn't seem right this year, perhaps, for you. I want you to know, friend, God has not forgotten you. His plan has never stopped, His promises are still true. And I think God wants us to use this Advent season to recognize that He is working all things together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. He is. even if it doesn't feel like it. And also remember that he's the one who's described as gentle and lowly. That's good news. This is the message that God gives to his people living in exile, behold, my servant, take heart. We have this announcement, the question is, can we trust the one giving the announcement? What do you think? Can we, can we trust him? Let's keep reading. Verse five, thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Now, in the first section, verses one to four, he was talking about the servant. We're coming to a section where he's talking to the servant. So we have a transition. But before this speaking to the servant, we have a description of the one who's speaking, a description of God telling us about his greatness. If you are with us two weeks ago, I made the comment, and I'll, I'll say it again. I'm more and more convinced now than ever that Part of the reason that we struggle with doubt and fear, part of the reason we struggle with discontentment and lack of joy, so many of the things that we struggle with all find their roots in the fact that we don't truly recognize who God is or his greatness, which means we don't believe fully the things he says. We don't trust him like we should. We don't truly think that his commands are good for us. What we have here is a description of the greatness of God. We're told there in verse 5 that he created all things. He stretches out the sky like a piece of fabric. He spreads out the earth like a blanket being spread out. Everything that comes from the earth, he made and sustains. And not only that, but he made us and he sustains us. And if you're wondering if you can trust him, that's a pretty good resume. If you did your homework and you read the rest of chapter 40, you know that second half of chapter 40? It's really just fleshing out what we see here in verse 5. I'll give you two examples. Isaiah 40 verse 12, he asks the question, we sing it together sometimes, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. You have that picture in your mind? He's sitting above the circle of the earth. The inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heaven like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Just a few verses that push us to see the greatness of God. And this is the one who's spoken, the one who sent his servant and who is now speaking to his servant. He says this to the servant in verse six, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. At this point, it's like we've been brought into a private room and we are hearing a private conversation. The father speaking to the son and outlining his mission. On your notes, if you're following along, we see the source of the mission. The source of the mission is God. He's saying, I am the Lord, the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the one who's speaking, who's sending the servant on this mission. And he's sending him in righteousness, we see that the rightness of the mission, which speaks both of God's motives are right. The mission itself is right and will happen in rightness. He's sending the son to accomplish what is good and just. And he's not sending him alone. He says, I'll take you by the hand and I will keep you. So we see the protection of the father over the son. Then we come to probably the most important part of the verse and the passage. The promise of the mission, he says to the son, the servant, I will give you as a covenant, as a light. God tells the servant that his sending is a fulfillment of a promise. If you know your Bible, you know covenants are a big deal. Our God is a God of covenants, promises. He's made covenants with his people and he always keeps his promises. What we see here is the servant is called the covenant. I'm giving you as a covenant. Or we could perhaps say as the fulfillment of the covenant, but he does say, I'm giving you as the covenant. God has made a promise of coming salvation, and now he tells the servant, You are that promise. You're the one who will bring the promise to fruition. I'm sending you as the promise and as the fulfillment of the promise. You are the promise I made to my people. And so he sends him. Does that sound funny to you? That Jesus is the promise? And yet, I think it sounds a lot like the way Jesus often describes himself. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Another place he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus is the promise and God sends the servant as the covenant and as the light for the nations. A covenant for the people, most likely Israel, A light for who? The world. Right? Jesus came. The promise for his people, the light to the world. And he comes with this aim, verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison those who sit in darkness. Now, of course, the people who Isaiah is writing to are in exile. They may feel like prisoners, and we know that Jesus, he healed blind people, but that's not what this is talking about. It's not about actual bars being open, actual people being let out of prison. It's a metaphor for our spiritual condition. We are people born blind, born as slaves to sin, born unable to see the light, but Jesus comes, and through him, we can see God for who he is. We can be set free from sin and death our eyes can be opened to see what is true. If you're still wondering, if you're still on the fence, is this really talking about Jesus? Well, in Luke chapter 4, we have this story of Jesus in his hometown, in the synagogue, the place where they went to hear teaching from the book of the law. I'll read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus comes to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. What did he read that day in church? Just picture this, Jesus in the synagogue. He's reading for the church, just like David read for us earlier. He unrolled the scroll and he found this place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, he gives it back to the attendant and he sits down. And the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. See what happens there? Now, there's several passages he quotes. He quotes Isaiah 61 He also quotes from Isaiah 42. And then he says, by the way, it's me. Jesus says Isaiah was about me. Which means, let me connect the dots. Why why go there right now? What I want you to hear is Isaiah proclaimed the promise of God. Generations later, Jesus came and said, it's me. He fulfilled those promises. Here's the point. God keeps his promises. And when Jesus left, he said, I'm coming again. God always keeps his promises. He's coming again. Advent is about us remembering that he came and that he is coming. And I want to convince you I've got two more weeks after this one to convince you. This matters for you today. It really does. If you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, this really matters because he is coming again and when he comes, he's going to save all those who are his and we get to be a part of that kingdom where all things are made new. When he comes, all those who haven't repented or believed, they have a different eternity, an eternity marked by judgment. So if you're here and you're in Christ, I'm trying to convince you this is good news. I should change the way you're living today. If you're here and you've never repented and you've never believed, I want you to know this really matters and it will impact whether or not this is actually hope for you or if this is a warning. I think I'm primarily talking to followers of Christ. and So to you, I want to say this is great hope. When we started, I told you that the people in the days of Isaiah had two temptations. One was to fear the world around them, to think they were too strong. The second was to trust and to live as the world around them, to believe they were right and should be trusted. God makes the case, you don't have to fear the world around you. I am greater than the world and you must not trust the ways of the world. Trust me. And what we see in verse 8 is another connection to chapter 41. And it's the reason why I believe the the main thrust of this passage isn't just the announcement, but it's a plea to the people of God to trust him. God says in verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We have these chapter breaks in our Bible, it all goes together. This is given here as a plea to the people of God telling them, here's the big idea. This is the title of the sermon. Here's what you can take with you. There is one whom you can trust. The one who sends the servant. The one who makes salvation possible. We know the temptation to look to other things for hope. Hope. When we're scared or overwhelmed or lost, we can be tempted to look to the things of the world for comfort or satisfaction, but God says, I'm God, look to me. Behold my servant. Advent is the time for us to be reminded that we have hope. We can look back and see what he's done. We can look forward and believe what is coming. His past actions prove his future faithfulness. His past actions prove his future faithfulness. He ends in verse 9. He says, Behold, the former things have come to pass. Everything I've said up to this point that would happen has happened. The former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. There's some imagery here of a seed in the ground waiting to spring up. It's coming. That seed will sprout the seed is the coming messiah who came his first time meek and gentle the light of the world accomplishing his work so that the eyes can be opened light can be seen prisoners freed and he's coming again and when he comes all who believe will be saved forever all who don't believe will be judged forever And all that's wrong will be made right forever. This isn't new for most of you. But I hope you'll accept the challenge to believe not only that it's true, but that it matters. It matters. And perhaps this week when you feel overwhelmed, you could say in your mind, Behold the servant of the Lord. And that would be a reminder. God can be trusted. God keeps his promises. There is a plan. He's working out his plan. This is good news. And the reason I know it's good news is because the next verses are songs of praise. Verse 10, and we'll end here. If so you keep reading, here's your homework. Read the rest of 42. I'll give you part of it. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. He's talking about the whole world. The desert, its cities lift up their voice, villages that Kedar inhabitants, the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands, his praise to the end of the world because the servant is coming. Take heart, he's coming.